Um, okay, so let's begin with Ukraine, I think quite understandably. Um, to me, um, the sinking of uh, the Moskova, the flagship of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea, is a symbolic uh, moment. And it's symbolic not just because this is the flagship um, of the Russian fleet in uh, the Black Sea, but because I think it symbolizes uh, the revolution that has taken place in warfare. Now, my understanding, having done, you know, minutes, minutes of uh, research, is that the ship didn't just spontaneously blow up or it wasn't uh, an accident. Uh, the ship was hit by two Neptune uh, land-based um, anti-ship uh, missiles. These Neptune missiles, as I understand it, are produced in Ukraine. My guess is that they are of a Soviet-era uh, design, so there's nothing highfalutin, new tech about them as far as I understand it. But I think that we can be pretty safe to say uh, that these missiles were guided by new technology, uh, i.e. Uh, by satellites, uh, and my guess would be, just pure guess, uh, by American or British, but most likely American uh, advisors stroke technicians. Um, in other words, they would have had banks of computers um, as well as satellite images, uh, they would have had, um, you know, um, the latest in what you need uh, to hit the this ship. And my my feeling is, well, if you can hit one ship, uh, you can hit the rest. Uh, and um, okay, um, you can say that this this ship it's a, a big ship, it's a Soviet era ship as well. But what you can also say about it, again, with some degree of certainty, is this wouldn't be simply a ship, you know, from 30 or 40 years ago. The hull might be. Um, but in terms of this ship, it would have gone in for repeated um, upgrades. And the very fact that it itself was a, a missile launching ship um, um, illustrates uh, that. So I presume that it was equipped with uh, cruise missiles. Um, and the like. And also it would have been equipped with uh, radar systems and defense systems that should have uh, been able to knock out uh, two in incoming uh, missiles, but didn't. Now, why they didn't, um, um, again, that's just beyond me. I haven't read uh, enough. I don't know enough. And maybe that information isn't available uh, publicly. Either way, it says something about naval warfare, and it also tells you something, I think, um, about uh, generals and, for that matter, admirals. And um, there's an old saying that uh, generals always fight the last war, and I think that's what's been going on, at least on the Russian side, uh, thus far. So we have their um, Black Sea fleet uh, with landing craft, we have their army, um, you know, with uh, tanks. Uh, and against that, uh, we see the Ukrainians uh, equipped with um, 
much lower level, you know, in terms of expense uh, equipment, uh, but often um, of the latest design. So I'm including these Neptune missiles, not because of the missiles themselves, but perhaps their guidance systems, the satellite connection, whatever. But that's certainly the case with um, um, NLAW uh, missiles and um, Javelin missiles, which are being used from what we can gather with great effect against Russian uh, tanks, in particular the early model tanks that they seem to be uh, using, uh, ones with weak armor uh, above. I've just seen pictures just to illustrate that. I think I've said this previously that, you know, one of these NLAW new lightweight anti tank weapons, I think is what it stands for, but basically go along low level like that and then just go up a bit and bang um, into um, a tank. So that these, these missiles are, you lock them on uh, within five seconds, you trigger the, the missile off and it guides itself and it guides itself not in a straight line, uh, but precisely where this tank is most vulnerable. So we've seen the, the revolution in warfare, um, you know, before our eyes, um, and we've seen what a devastating um, effect it has and can have uh, in terms of uh, the rest um, of uh, the war. Also, just in terms of um, commenting on where we are at at the moment, we've got the siege coming to its last ghastly uh, end in Mariupol on the Black Sea uh, coast in the southeast uh, of Ukraine. And what we have is not only the story of uh, British uh, fighters surrendering, we also have stories, This how trustworthy it is, I don't know. Uh, I was reading it in the Daily Mail, and I trust very little I read in the Daily Mail. But the Daily Mail was reporting uh, that under some huge iron and steel uh, complex in Mariupol, um, during Soviet times, they dug um, anti-nuclear bunkers. And this is where various um, Ukrainian forces, including the Azov uh, Brigade, are uh, buried down um, into. I'm not saying that's just where they are, but they've, they've occupied these uh, tunnels. And apparently these tunnels go down, down, down sort of type idea. Um, and I'm you know, from what I read in the Daily Mail, uh, these tunnels cannot just simply be penetrated by missiles or bombs, not conventional bombs, maybe a nuclear bomb or a bunker buster, perhaps. Um, gas and poison, uh, chemical poisons are problematic, um, etc. Either way, one would expect eventually for them to be starved out, to run out of ammunition, um, um, either to surrender or die. Um, and at the present time, it looks like they are committed to uh, dying to the last man. And why I'm saying that is twofold. One, because it illustrates their heroism. Yes, e you know, even people you disapprove of, like the Azov Brigade, you could admire uh, their heroism. But also politically, I, I believe, I don't know this for a fact, but I would uh, very much suspect that this will have a political impact if there's a post-war um, Ukraine, um, i.e. 
at the present time, the far right, the, the fascistic forces when it comes to parliamentary elections uh, in Ukraine are pretty marginal. I think they got 2%. Uh, I would very much expect a very different picture uh, when the next elections, if the next elections uh, come round. As I say, that's speculation. Uh, nonetheless, um, you know, their, their fanaticism um, clearly comes from politics. And the more uh, this war um, goes on, uh, the more we would expect fanaticism uh, to be uh, generated. Okay, so also where we're at, um, according to um, the Russians, is this is now phase two, uh, just about to begin. Clearly, whatever the exact aims of uh, phase one were, um, I would guess, uh, uh, taking uh, Kiev, that failed. Uh, phase two, we don't know what the result will be. Uh, this is taking the whole of uh, Donbass. Where things go after that depends on um, the, the fight to take or defend, depending how you want to put it, uh, Donbass. Um, so Putin's forces have been tasked uh, with taking a lot of it. Um, Ukrainian forces are tasked with holding uh, their half uh, of Donbass. Now, it might appear that this is a straightforward battle. Uh, you know, this is ideal uh, tank fighting uh, uh, territory. If you go just to the north into Russia, uh, you'll find on the map uh, a place called Kursk, uh, which, of course, was the scene, I think, of the largest tank battle ever. Uh, this was between German forces and Soviet forces uh, in World War II, and it was a turning point. Uh, and it showed that the, you know, the Panzer divisions could be defeated uh, by Soviet T-34s. They could turn out T-34s in very large numbers, and they did, and they triumphed uh, in the Battle uh, of Kursk. So it might appear uh, that just going slightly to the south and slightly to the east, you're into the same, uh, you know, sort of geography. And you are. The difference is uh, that since 2014, forces such as the Azov Battalion, but also other Ukrainian forces have dug themselves in. And therefore, I don't think that we'll be seeing, um, you know, a, a rerun uh, of uh, World War II. I don't know what's in the minds of um, Russian uh, generals, um, but my guess for what it's worth um, is that we're much more into the territory of um, trench-type warfare, trench-type warfare, uh, but including tunnels, um, i.e. of the, the sort that Hezbollah successfully deployed uh, against Israeli forces in, in South, uh, South Lebanon. Uh, the Israelis simply looked at Hezbollah, looked at the Lebanese forces, and said, we've got overwhelming military superiority. We've got more tanks, better tanks, uh, more aircraft. don't think the other side had any aircraft to talk about. Either way, we've got overwhelming military superiority. We're the regional superpower. Who the hell is Hezbollah? And yet Hezbollah was able to stop 
And to all intents and purposes, because it did that, was able to defeat the Israeli army. So we shouldn't imagine uh, that simply looking at the number of tanks, number of artillery pieces, this is going to be some pushover. We're dealing with uh, massive, massive supplies by NATO uh, to the Ukrainian side, plus positions uh, that have been constructed um, over a whole number uh, of years. So if uh, anyone is expecting, you know, fast moving uh, warfare, I suspect myself uh, that that is not going to turn out to be the case. So again, uh, just like we've seen in Mariupol, just like we saw in the, you know, surrounds of Kiev, um, I think um, you, you can see uh, these Russian forces being ground down, uh, being slowed down, stopped. Um, and then um, a war of attrition, which relies on logistics, which thus far, if reports are right, and they do seem to be, you know, confirmed by a whole number of sources on the Russian side have been uh, particularly poor. So lorries breaking down, uh, fuel not being supplied, food not being supplied to Russian soldiers and soldiers being forced to abandon tanks and armored cars and go out there and scavenge uh, in towns, villages, um, and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, making themselves vulnerable, slowing uh, the whole thing uh, down. Why? Poor logistics, a whole host of reasons. You know, uh, all you need to do is begin at the top in Russia, look at the nature of the regime, and that will be repeated uh, down uh, the pyramid. So pilfering, um, Contracts uh, that are done simply on the basis of making money, uh, lack of quality control, um, you name it, it will be that, uh, as I said, uh, repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. Okay. Just wanted to shift um, tack now, um, you know, from looking at the sort of military situation in Ukraine to looking at some aspects of the of the politics um, uh, of it. I've been reading or looking at um, a video from, um, I don't know whether it's Brussels or Strasbourg, but uh, the European uh, Parliament, we've had similar um, uh, points being made by some in the um, uh, leadership um, of uh, the Labour Party in Britain, but you can read it in um, Guardian, um, um, articles and other such uh, commentary. And that's the idea uh, that the West has a particular affinity uh, for Ukraine. Why? Because they look like us. I just think that that is a, a liberal uh, reading. Uh, this is uh, Claire Daly, um, and I can't remember his uh, name, the other um, MEP for, what's it called? Um Independence for Change. Uh, I think they have two MPs, MEPs in uh, the European uh, Parliament. But the basic idea is that um, the reason why uh, there's been such sympathy for um, Ukrainian uh, refugees is that, you know, uh, the archetypal refugees, blonde, you know, fair skinned, uh, where if you look at um, you know, Syria, they're dark haired and um, olive uh, skinned, and that explains things. I don't think it explains anything of the kind. 
Um, actually, of course, what we're dealing with here is um, geostrategic politics. And that is um, a proxy war by NATO, crucially US uh, imperialism. Uh, we're dealing with uh, the Putin regime that clearly is acting in a defensive but offensive way. Um, Putin seems to have, you know, in his head, um, some sort of idea of refounding uh, the Russian Empire, a greater Russia, incorporating Ukraine, Belarus, maybe other um, former parts of the Russian um, Empire. Either way, um, the point would be that from um, NATO's angle, what uh, Putin has done has played into uh, the hands of those that want regime change uh, in Moscow because they believe that uh, Russia can be defeated or at least bogged down into an endless war, uh, which was always my uh, view of it. You know, the idea that Russian generals might have had because we uh, could walk over Georgia, which they did, you can repeat that with Ukraine. I, I just think well, if that is the case, that's a profound misreading um, of the situation. Um, all you need to say is whatever the population of Ukraine is, and I think you know it's around about 45 uh, million, it's considerably bigger than uh, Georgia. And what we're dealing here with here uh, is a country uh, that has been massively now supplied uh, uh, by NATO and clearly, as has been illustrated in Mariupol and Kiev, is determined to fight. And uh, OK, there's a 20 percent or thereabouts Russian minority. I don't know exactly what the situation is with them, but as a broad figure, 80 percent of the population are determined uh, to resist. And that is exactly uh, what they are uh, doing. Just to illustrate my point, um, I, I haven't looked it up, but it's sort of, I, I never bloody watched the film. Uh, but if anyone remembers what it was like um, when the Soviet Union uh, first sent, um, you know, big forces uh, into uh, Afghanistan, you know, what impact that had on popular culture. And was it Sylvester Stallone? in some bloody awful uh, film, um, you know, heroizing the Mujahideen. And certainly if you look at James Bond films and other such um, output of both Britain and uh, the United States, these people were heroes. And often they were led uh, by, you know, tribal leaders. Um, but often in these films, they turned out to have gone to Eton or Harrow or Cambridge or Oxford. In other words, they were civilized. That was the message. But these people became the hero. Uh, while there was a Western interest in grinding down uh, Soviet forces and turning Afghanistan into a Soviet version uh, of Vietnam. And again, just on the refugee question, uh, I mean, we can't forget surely that something like half a million Syrian refugees were let into Germany, but also think about, again, the politics of it, uh, which are ongoing, and that's the campaign, you know, the ultimate win uh, for the United States, which is not only uh, taking uh, Russia, but going on to China, 
and uh, Britain's uh, treatment, of course, of Hong Kong and Hong Kong uh, citizens and how they've been given um, easy access um, um, into uh, Britain. Um, explaining that on the basis of skin color or racial politics, I think entirely misses the point. Um, so there's an element of that, no doubt, uh, but I think it's inadequate. What's going on here is something that's much more uh, fundamental. Um, it's to do with um, uh, the great chess game uh, that Brzezinski uh, described, um, and the pivotal to that uh, is Ukraine, and the idea is quite clear. Uh, first we get Moscow, uh, then we get Beijing. Um, okay, let's also move on from that. Um, one of my jobs is to report on the left press. Thankfully, not all of it. Um, my particular job is to report on The Socialist, which is perhaps the worst paper on the left. Just appalling. Uh, this week, for example, which is quite typical, it has a mention of uh, the Ukraine war, but just in passing on the back page, capitalism is bad. Look at the war in Ukraine and that's it. No analysis, um, no looking at the position of other left groups, no looking at the, uh, how should put it, the geopolitical uh, uh, background to this. Nothing about refugees, uh, nothing at all. It's all economic uh, trade union uh, uh, type uh, struggles. But uh, my other job is to read Socialist Worker, which is much more interesting, I have to say. Doesn't mean I agree with it, but it's a lot more interesting than The Socialist. Well, this week, um, I won't be banging on about uh, Alex Kalinikos and his dear um, Paul Mason letter or his dear Gilbert letter, but I will be uh, dealing with... Um, uh, socialist workers report of the Ukraine solidarity campaign demonstration last weekend. Now, I readily confessed I wasn't there, but helpfully, uh, the uh, Ukraine solidarity campaign put a video of the demonstration up uh, and I watched that. And uh, I have the feeling as a result of that, that I was there. And uh, because it was so small, um, you could see the beginning and you could see the end. You could see the dynamics um, of the demonstration. You know, Paul Mason was there. Uh, Peter Tatchell uh, was there. These are faces I instantly recognize. The AWL were there with their uh, Arm Ukraine placards, which they then proceeded to shout, Arm, Arm, Arm Ukraine. And you had, I can't remember her second name. Is it Nadia, the MP from... Nottingham uh, took up that chant, but the whole demonstration took up that chant. Now, in the midst of this war where NATO is quite visibly arming Ukraine with uh, these sophisticated shoulder-launched um, anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles and is clearly cooperating with Ukraine when it comes to guidance and intelligence, um, is committed to supply Ukraine in the form of Britain, uh, with armoured cars and a host of other military hardware. What are these people actually calling for? From what I can work out, and surely that must be the case, uh, what they're calling for NATO to do next is to arm uh, Ukraine with F-35 fighters, with ballistic 
uh, missiles and the latest uh, American uh, tanks. I mean, because what else hasn't Ukraine got? It's got everything else. It's got the drones. It's got the shoulder launched uh, missiles. So that's what they are calling for. And socialist worker uh, breaking from its usual tradition actually reports this uh, demonstration. And in the course of their report, they talk about Paul Mason as, quote unquote, the former left winger, uh, Paul Mason. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, Alex Kalinikos, the intellectual leader um, of um, the SWP, was calling Paul Mason comrade. And I, I'm left wondering why you would call someone who's a former left winger a turncoat a renegade, a traitor, surely, uh, to the working class. Why would you address them uh, in such a glowing way uh, as um, Alex Kalinikos did? And uh, he repeated that uh, a couple of weeks later with his friend Gilbert, uh, didn't he, who was also a supporter uh, of this uh, UW, uh, UC, whatever the hell it's called, Ukraine Solidarity, USC demonstration. Now, the demonstration was small, um, mainly elderly. I'm not anyone to talk about, uh, hey, where are all the youth? You know, that sort of type idea, but elderly, um, pretty shuffly sort of demonstration. Uh, but they reported it quite rightly as a protest in inverted commas for the reasons uh, that I've already uh, mentioned. Um, and what I, found, what I found interesting in that sense, in terms of the mainstream coverage of this sort of question, you know, the, the left um, is the Labour Party denounces Stop the War Coalition as some sort of Putinite fifth column. Um, you know, the spineless uh, 11 left Labourites uh, collapsed uh, in front of that because they would have the whip withdrawn from them. But in terms of the rest of the coverage, what we've had in the Times and other such papers is some sort of inter-Nissan war going on uh, between the left. So Owen Jones, uh, uh, Paul Mason um, versus whoever the hell it happens to be. Now, quite frankly, um, you know, when someone calls Paul Mason or for that matter, in my view, Owen Jones, a left winger, I have to double take. Uh, and say, well, left-wingers, this is equivalent of calling Claire Fox uh, a left-winger. Uh, these people deserted anything that I recognize as the left years ago. Paul Mason, for example, uh, you know, I've already mentioned uh, Alex Kalinikos and pra praising for bizarre reasons, not only him as an individual, but his last book on fascism which advocated a popular front. Well, you might say that's a left-wing uh, thing to do or only um, on the level of official communism or Menshevism uh, before that. But also uh, Paul Mason has been an advocate of um, supporting NATO, uh, supporting nuclear power, not only in the form of um, nuclear power stations, but nuclear weapons uh, as well. I just, and I just asked myself, what is left wing about him? If we look at Paul Mason's underlying thesis, it's called accelerationism. And uh, this is equivalent of Bernstein. This is equivalent of Peter Struve in Russia, um, i.e. capitalist progress leads to socialism. It's not the working class. It's not the class struggle. Uh, capitalism itself 
leads to socialism, capitalist progress. I think a similar thesis has been put forward, for example, by uh, Aaron Bastani of, is it Nova uh, Media? Um, you know, that um, capitalism should be encouraged in terms of technology, and that will produce you, what do they call it, uh, uh, fully automated luxury uh, communism. That's not uh, the product of the working class. This is the product of machines. Uh, this isn't uh, this, this isn't left. This isn't left wing. Um, uh, this is bourgeois uh, politics. Okay. Um, just last point on that. Uh, AWL has been prescribed. We had an article, good article, uh, in the weekly worker on it, and I just wanted to flag um, any um, charges, possible charges of hypocrisy on our our behalf, because what we've got in there is the formulation. At this present juncture, uh, we do not support uh, the purging um, of the AWL or words to that effect. Uh, well, there's nothing hypocritical about our position. It's uh, historically established. We stand for the purging of the far right, the, the pro-capitalist right uh, in the Labour Party, if we controlled it. Now, that's a very big if, and that's what we're arguing. And um, um, all I would say is if we control the Labour Party today, and then you have to rewrite, I know the whole of politics, so uh, I know it's fantasy politics, but nonetheless, to make the point, if we were in charge of the Labour Party today, not only would Keir Starmer uh, go, so would the AWL, so would the social imperialist uh, uh, forces, so-called left forces. Keir Starmer is not a social anything. He's a bourgeois politician. Martin Thomas, on the other hand, the leader of the AWL, hides uh, their pro-imperialism uh, behind quotes from Lenin or Trotsky or Marx or Engels. That's where the social uh, come, comes in. Okay, moving on, French elections. So far, I have to, you know, I readily confess uh, to me, this is just deja vu. And that's why I haven't, you know, rushed to look at the opinion polls, look at the detailed results. Uh, I don't know how long this particular pattern has been going on, but it's been going on a long time. I remember um, we organized a debate um, with Alan Thornett, and I think Alan Thornett was then the leader of, was it Socialist Resistance or was it, I can't remember what the organization was called. They've gone through so many name changes, I've forgotten. Either way, what they are now is anti-capitalist resistance. Before that, they were Socialist Resistance, or as we said, resisting socialism. Either way, when we arranged the debate, Alan Thornett um, was um, in favor of boycotting the second round of the French elections, which pitted, from my memory, Chirac against Le Pen. But this wasn't Marine Le Pen. This was Daddy uh, Le Pen. And um, we had a similar view. Um, we said that uh, we shouldn't really be in a position. We don't want to be in a position. We're not going to be in a position between choosing what some more principled sections of the left in France called the fief, the fief uh, and the fascist. To hell with both of them. But in the process of uh, putting this debate on, Alan, as he, as he does, shifts his position um, away from boycott 
uh, to voting for the thief. Um, either way, we've had this pattern of the mainstream, the centrist um, candidate versus the far left. In my youth, why I used to pay a lot more attention to it, um, it tended to be the left um, that got the second uh, place and then went down to a defeat uh, by a de Gaulle or whoever. We had the Mitterrand uh, presidency and we had Hollande. Um, anyway, uh, the usual pattern was the left was defeated. The French Communist Party would take the Ministry of uh, Labour, sell out strikes and spread demoralization and disillusionment in the working class. Hence, we get where we are today. Either way, um, the result um, in terms of the first round didn't surprise me whatsoever. We've ended up with Le Pen versus Macron. My guess, for what it's worth, not worth anything, is that Macron will win. That depends, though, on um, Melanchance in the main um, supporters. And what was interesting, again, I don't know what significance to uh, give it, uh, the Socialist Worker this week reporting uh, the results of the first round of the election was saying that the left did very poorly. Uh, well, it did in the form of the French Communist Party, which used to, uh, you know, get 20% uh, and was historically bigger than the um, French Socialist Party, which used to be called French Socialist Party, what was it, or French Section of the Socialist International. That was its official name for many, many years. Either way, um, I don't know what the French Socialist Party got, but as a throwaway, let's call it 2%. Um, the French uh, Communist Party, I think, was 2.5%. And then if we go to the Trotskyist or Trotskyoid left, we've got the new anti-capitalist party, that's the Mandelite party, and then we've got um, Lutu Vier. Um, together, uh, they got 1%. And what Socialist Worker, of course, leaves out uh, is Melanchon. And um, I've got the figure here. Well, basically, it's 22%. It's 21.95%. He came, you know, in other words, he did extraordinarily well, uh, actually. So, uh, what else about uh, his vote? Apparently, uh, he did very well amongst 18 to 34-year-olds. I think I read that half that particular cohort uh, actually voted uh, for him. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, the future is left-wing. I think that would be naive in the extreme. Nevertheless, 7.7 million uh, voters. And as I understand it, uh, we've got something like um, a third of them when pollsters uh, ask them uh, what they're going to vote in the first round, a third of them say uh, Le Pen on an anti-establishment basis. A third say that they're going to boycott, and I think a third are undecided. So if you put all that together, um, that seems to be the, the, the most important block, clearly, uh, when it comes to choosing between the narrow distance between uh, Macron uh, and Le Pen. Okay, what else to say? From my angle, um, um, I would adhere, and that's the position of uh, the PCC. That's been the you know, historically established position of the PCC. 
uh, we do not want to choose between Marine uh, Le Pen and Macron. Uh, we don't think that's the correct um, thing to do. Um, so we're in favour of an active uh, boycott. Um, socialist worker, again, I, I'm, I haven't read enough, but is predicting big protests. That's exactly what we would do. We agree, by the way, with uh, at least um, some elements, of course, of Mélenchon's uh, programme. We disagree with others. He says abolish NATO. We agree, not just re, um, you know, reset NATO back to 8991, uh, abolish NATO. That's the correct position. He also says refound the EU on a democratic basis. We agree. He also says, and this is something we've been raising for many, many years to the incomprehension of the, the left in Britain for Sixth Republic. Um, and uh, yeah, quite rightly, um, the, the Fifth Republic is described as semi-monarchical. Absolutely right. Uh, this goes back to the writings of Marx and Engels talking about the presidency of um, Louis Bonaparte, but also to the American system of uh, the US president is an elected monarch. Uh, we're for the abolition um, of the elected monarch. Remember, the 58 Constitution was written specifically for de Gaulle. Huge powers uh, for the president. So abolish the presidency, a fifth republic. No, we don't want to continue with that. We want a sixth republic. On the other hand, uh, if you look at Mélenchon's um, organization, what is it? Uh, France unbowed. Um, this is, um, he, he, he broke, this is my understanding, of it, he broke from the French Socialist Party along with some Trotskyists founded something I think called the Left Party, I might be wrong there, or something left, but then founded this particular formation. And what is characteristic about this formation is it's similar as an operation to momentum in Britain, to Nigel Farage's Reform Party, Brexit Party. Um, this is a one-man, um, non-party um, organization um, it's a Bonapartist project. Um, whether you can turn that uh, uh, into a party, I'm very skeptical about. It's like saying after the John Landsman coup in Momentum, how is that possible? Uh, how is it possible to reform this or organization? It claims to have half a million members, but this is the equivalent of um, Momentum having 30,000 members um, who, you know, who vote according to, you know, some sort of, um, you know, click um, referendum um, and, are, and are excluded from, you know, um, real power uh, because they, they cannot effectively um, organise. So this is um, a very dubious uh, a political uh, project. In other words, at least it's worthwhile thinking about the nature uh, of this uh, project. I'm not accusing it of being right wing, uh, but in spite of its protestations, which correct for a Sixth Republic, a democratic refounding of the EU, if, the, if his own organization is anything to go by, uh, this is demagoguery um, as opposed to um, a genuine declaration of political 
uh, principles. In other words, Mélenchon doesn't want to bother uh, with awkward um, districts, with awkward uh, left-wing factions, awkward things like conferences and debates and uh, taking definite uh, positions. Uh, this is an, an amorphous um, uh, organization, nonetheless beneath the apparent um, how should you put it? Horizontal nature of it. It's actually very firmly a vertical and non-democratic um, organization. Okay, just coming towards the end. Let's look at the time. So I've got give myself ten minutes or so, and I'll finish. Wanted to talk about Rwanda, uh, not the political economy of Rwanda, of course, uh, but Rwanda and Pretty Patel and refugees. And what's this all about? This has got nothing to do uh, with um, sending masses of people, um, you know, like th a thousand a week uh, to Rwanda. This is an election ploy. Uh, this is pure cynicism. And uh, basically, the calculation is, how do we save ourselves, this is the Tory uh, party, from a hammering? In the local elections, how do we save Boris Johnson from Partygate and um, um, all the rest of it? And the answer is, what we do is we go after refugees. And um, uh, what we do is we go from turning boats back, which was never going to happen, uh, to when people land, we put them in a processing centre. And if they don't qualify, or before they qualify, we send them all the way. Uh, Toronto. Well, my guess is if they get 100 people there, um, that would be lucky. There are, there are bound to be appeals, as I understand it. This is against the Geneva Convention. So there's going to be all sorts of um, legal battles, but that doesn't matter. Uh, so even if each person who ends up on a plane costs this government 10 million pounds, and I suspect that will be the case, that won't matter uh, to the government because that's not what it's about. Uh, this isn't about people smugglers. This isn't about the evil trade uh, in refugees. This is political posturing. Um, so we need to understand the madness of it in that context, uh, not, uh, well, this won't work. Um, it, it's not designed uh, to stop people smugglers. And it will not stop people wanting to come to Britain. All you need to do is just listen to an interview with people you know, in Calais or wherever. And uh, I don't think it's because they, they're just selected, but the usual, why do you want to come to Britain? Well, because, and that's the answer. They speak English. They'll have contacts in, in Britain. Uh, they will have the possibility of a better life in Britain. They do not speak German. They do not speak French. They do not speak Spanish. They speak English. Why? Because the British Empire was replaced by American hegemony. It's the dominant language in the planet, um, and it's people's second language. That's why uh, they want to come uh, to Britain. And they want to join uncle. They want to join um, previous uh, pe people who have come to Britain um, and have established themselves here. And if they're taken to Rwanda, uh, the majority of them will escape <laughs> and will make their way north with through one means or another uh, until they get to the English Channel or get to Heathrow or get wherever, uh, that will continue. But this is about politics, 
And this is about appealing uh, to, you know, the, the sort of sentiment uh, that Britain is overcrowded and that sort of idea and can't take any more. And um, just to make a final point on that, in the midst of uh, Ukraine and uh, the Tories peddling the idea of all Ukrainian refugees welcome here, uh, we would say refugees and not just refugees, uh, but migrants are welcome here. But we would add in um, that we want them to have full, not just citizenship rights after six months, but we want citizens here in Britain to have full trade union rights, uh, for example. And therefore, we need, in terms of uh, slogans about refugees, also raise slogans about the organisation of refugees and migrants into trade unions with trade union rights and conditions. And that means fighting uh, to um, destroy, to rescind not only the latest anti-trade union laws, but the anti-trade union laws that go all the way back to Thatcher, but also uh, beyond, um, back into uh, the 1970s uh, with the deals that the Labour Party, Labour governments, uh, did with the trade union bureaucracy uh, to curb um, shop steward power, uh, for example. Rank and file power um, is what we want. That's not the answer. This is the guerrilla struggle of the working class. Nonetheless, that ought to be seen as part of uh, the answer. Just two more points. Iran deal, what deal? Uh, clearly, there's a, a delay. My bet, for what it's worth, is a deal will be signed at some point. Uh, but clearly, um, the Revolutionary Guards or the Red, uh, the Revolutionary Guard overseas branch, whatever the sticking point is, is a sticking point. Uh, and maybe that derails the whole talks, the whole of the Vienna talks, quite possible. But America clearly wants a deal in the middle of this um Ukraine war, uh, and the fact that at least from what I can see, um, Saudi Arabia is not willing simply to turn the taps on um, in order to overcome America's difficulties for its own particular reasons, which I don't know enough about. Okay, and lastly, just a quick comment on China and COVID. Um, China, uh, I think, can be said to have had a good COVID pandemic, not at the beginning when it was into denial, and it could have could have stopped COVID in its tracks if it didn't do that. So, you know, what, um, um, you know, scientists would recommend is once this strange disease had been detected and it had been detected in Wuhan, um, there should have been an instant response. There should have been a lockdown locally. There should have been testing. And that could have... And it's been known with other uh, outbreaks that could have killed, killed the virus. If viruses don't reproduce, if they don't spread, if they don't transmit, they die. Uh, they, it would have become um, an X virus. Once it was out, out of China, then we had to rely on yeah, local lockdowns in order to ensure that the NHS and other such institutions, which had been run down, on the basis of just-in-time production techniques, Tony Blair and all the rest of it, and ignoring uh, exercises such as Jeremy Hunt, Operation Cygnus. Oh, we don't want that one because the NHS collapses uh, under this uh, 
this uh, un, you know this hypothetical uh, virus. So yes, lockdowns at the beginning uh, to mitigate the spread of this virus, but also vaccination. And you have to say that uh, the vaccination program has been a stunning success to develop it in such record time. So many companies, so many governments. Uh, putting the power of the state, not the market, uh, to solve these problems in just an amazing short time. But in China, what we've still got is lockdown. And when you lock down a city of 26 million in the situation of where we've got a highly transmittable disease, and then on top of that with this Omicron and whatever else we're facing now, even more, even more transmittable uh, this is impossible. This simply can't work. Um, you know, you lock down, you isolate, you kill it in Shanghai. And as soon as the next tourist comes in um, from abroad or from another part of China, they will bring it in. Uh, you cannot fight it any longer. Um, clearly, now we're dealing with something uh, that we hope will evolve in the direction of the Spanish flu will evolve in the direction of the common cold. Once um, common cold was a deadly disease, I don't know what its exact origins are, but it will have a zootic origin. Same with the, the Spanish flu. It was a killer, killed millions in an incredibly short period of time, but evolved um, in the direction of a common cold because the, the virus isn't interested in killing you and me. It's simply interested in reproducing itself. And so, yeah, we want um, immunization. Uh, I, I still think uh, face masks, social distancing, um, dealing with particular uh, outbreaks, ventilation, all these things are important, uh, but we're no longer in a position of where we can isolate this, um, this virus and kill it. Um, okay, I'm talking as a non-medic, you will readily recognize, but it does strike me as, I, I don't know why the Chinese government uh, is doing what it's doing. It strikes me as having gone from a very rational and very successful program um, into the realms of, uh, well, that sort of worked, but precisely into the realms now of the irrational. Anyway, that's, that's it. So thank you, Oliver.